Hi, everybody, and welcome to the first edition of the Ulysses Neuroscience podcast for 2021. Uh, my name is Charlotte Callahan, and I'm going to be the host today. I'm Chief Scientific Officer with Ulysses Neuroscience. Um, and my co-host is Fabiana Trani, who is our PhD student with Ulysses Neuroscience. And today our guest is Barry Murphy, who is the Communications Officer with BodyWise. And uh, we're going to focus our podcast on eating disorders and so welcome Fabi and uh, Barry thanks for joining us Um, we've decided to focus to start off the year with our podcast on eating disorders because January's sort of or or January is the time of year when everybody starts to really look at them their their health look at their weight and assess what they're eating and tend to exercise more. And so it's really good to do this with like a a healthy approach. So it's a good time to, I think, be aware of eating disorders and what they are. And we also have the Eating Awareness Week coming up, which is March 1st to uh, March 7th. So maybe before Barry, we jump over to asking you some questions. Um, Fabi's done a little bit of research just on the different types of eating disorders that they are, and she's going to give us a little um, introduction to those. Yeah, hi everybody. I'm really glad to be here as a co-host and to talk about this very important uh, matter, especially during these difficult times. So, um, eating disorders are a various range of psychological conditions that basically affect uh, eating habits. And uh, they can be caused by a variety of factors such as uh, genetics, brain biology, personality traits, and cultural ideas. The four uh, most common and actually uh, recognized by the SM5 are um, anorexia nervosa, which is characterized by um, highly restricted uh, eating patterns, and bulimia nervosa, which is characterized by um, uh, binge uh, eating and uh, compensatory, compensatory patterns behavior and um, binge, eating, binge eating disorder, which is very similar and is characterized by uh, episode of binge eating without the compensatory uh, behavior part. And the last one is the avoidant restrictive food intake disorder, which is characterized by um, highly selective um, eating uh, behaviors. So these are the four most common, but there are many others eating uh, disorder, which are in the way uh, I read that some of them are in the way to be uh, recognized and uh, to be researched actually. So maybe uh, Barry, you can talk about some of them later on uh, in the podcast. And um, so um, in uh, Ulysses Neuroscience, we actually have some uh, research on eating disorder. And maybe uh, Charlotte, you want to talk more about that? Yes, so uh, we in Ulysses Neuroscience have a particular interest in research in eating disorders um, with uh, uh, probably a larger focus on anorexia nervosa. And, and the reason for this is really that, you know, eating disorders affect between one to 4% of the population. And there's very little research going into uh, understanding the disorders and, and developing new treatments for them. And um, 
but uh, it, and in, in the case of anorexia nervosa, this is uh, the psychiatric disorder with the highest mortality rate, um, which is, you know, kind of scary when you think of that. And then you look at the funding that goes into this. And we're going to talk more now with Barry about sort of the funding and the research end of um, the research around eating disorders. So maybe Barry, you'd like to start by introducing uh, yourself and um, telling us a little bit about BodyWise. Yeah, so my name is Barry Murphy. I'm the communications officer for BodyWise, the eating disorder support organization in Ireland. And we provide listening information and support services to people affected by eating disorders across all age ranges, uh, both for the person with an eating disorder and also for their family and friends. So we have a helpline service, we have an email support service, we have online support groups for almost two decades now at this point. And then we also have a family program called Pillar, which is a four week psychoeducation program. And so maybe you can tell us a little bit about what your role is at BodyWise, Barry. Yes, yeah, so my role is quite diverse as, as communications officer. You know, I work a lot with the, the mainstream media in terms of responding to journalists. That could be across print, broadcast, online, podcast. I've done a lot of work as well with the social media techie companies in Ireland here around the issue of online safety and what is known as pro-ana material, harmful content, pro-anorexia material. I've done a couple of public submissions, uh, you know, got invited to Leinster House off the back of one of those submissions for uh, the Children's Digital Safety Protection Bill. So that's a, kind of a rough snapshot of what I do. I also develop some of our literature as well and update our website and manage our social media accounts. And uh, Barry, maybe um, uh, would you like to talk about what kind of services do you provide for family support? Because we know it's, um, it's a little bit hard to deal with all the stress that uh, an eating disorder can cause to the whole family, actually, not only to the person affected to that. Uh, so we know that BodyWise provided, uh, provide a range of service for this kind of support. Yeah, you, you are you are right. You know, the, the, the family does feel the effects of an eating disorder. And I think it's fair to say no family goes through this situation unscathed, unfortunately. That that is just the reality. So parents are very welcome to contact our helpline or email support service. But what we did back in, in twenty fourteen is we launched a family program. What we were noticing was that our kind of face-to-face -face support groups outside of the Dublin region, they weren't really working, people weren't coming. And I think that's for a number of different reasons, you know, certainly a fear of being identified or recognized, you know, potentially bumping into your neighbor, uh, lack of transport options outside of the capital city. And that's why we kind of had to review the situation and then said, look, these face-to-face -face support groups outside of Dublin don't seem to be working, but families still still do need support. And that's where the Pillar program came in and launched in 2014 and has been running now online since the pandemic, since last March. And, you know, we supported over 600 family members through that program last year, a 98% increase on 2019. 
What I would say about the impact on families and parents in particular is that their role as a parent changes. So they, be, they go from becoming a parent and they become more of a carer. That's the dynamic that changes. So part of the family program is giving parents a space to talk where they can highlight their own needs and get questions answered. And, just, and there's a huge benefit from being in, in normal times in a room with other parents who are experiencing some, something similar. And you know, in the online space, yes, it's a little bit different, but they do get that engagement. And you know, it's just really important that they have the coping tools then that they can take back into their family situation. And it's, you know, it's not that they have to be an expert on eating disorders, they don't, but they are experts on their own children. And if we can give them the coping tools, then that just does bring a little bit of relief into their personal circumstance. Sure. Yeah, that's really um, interesting. And it's so important to, to, to support the families and the units around the, the patients themselves, because that's really the bubble that people are existing within. Um, but um, I think maybe you'd like to talk a little bit about the different services or facilities that's offered to children and adults suffering with eating disorders, because that's going to be approached in a, in a different way, right? I'll just add on quickly with the families then you know it's it's really hard on families because sometimes in the wider family circle there's a there's a lack of understanding and that can be that can be manifested in the sense of well come on now can you not just get them to eat and you know it doesn't work like that an eating disorder just doesn't work like that unfortunately so it's very hard on the immediate family where maybe the wider family circle are making comments that are that are not well informed and then you know, it makes it harder for a family to seek support in those kind of circumstances. In terms of the support services for body-wise, so we've two online support groups. One is for adults, uh, for people aged 19 and up, and the other is for young people, which is people aged 13 to 18. Both of those age groups can, of course, also access the helpline service as well and our email support service. Uh, you quickly mentioned um, when you talked about a family that weren't so uh, keen to enter the program. Uh, so you mentioned a uh, social stigma around this kind of uh, disorder. So uh, I was wondering how uh, BodyWise deal with it. I mean, if you have any kind of program or uh, if you have any kind of advice for families or caregivers to approach and to ask for help, uh, even in a social situation that it's uh, um, hard to accept for them. It's, it's really, really hard. Like, I mean, are you, are you asking around communicating with the person who's unwell or are you asking, is that your questions based around, or is it about how to deal with maybe the aunt and the uncle who maybe is not well informed and making comments that are unhelpful? Yeah, I think both. I mean, if you have any advice for family that doesn't that don't want like to seek support because of social stigma and uh, how to deal with people who are not in, were informed informed about the kind of eating disorder, so maybe kind of both. I don't think it's that the, that the family are unwilling to seek support. It's more just that they 
that they realize that you know that they have to be very careful in disclosing and you know if you look at a recent recent study that came out from Norway actually there were three key pieces within within the family and this was an interview of parents of adults both mums and dads whose adult, adult daughter had an eating disorder so there was very much increased isolation and loneliness for families parents also very much felt they were constantly on the alert because they, they kind of felt look so that include like always being on standby for some for getting a text or a phone call that some sort of medical crisis was going to happen and then there was also peace around the eating disorder very much taking over the family home as well so that's very difficult for all for for parents and families and any social situations or social occasions around food kind of become very very difficult and in that study the kind of you know the, the parents would kind of step back and, and food can kind of become a too taboo topic in the in the household as well yeah i can see how that will become incredibly difficult given that most of our celebration offense or family celebrations are built around food so it become you know becomes a very negative space then when this is going to be the focus right and um, maybe barry could actually give talk to us a little bit about how if you do, or if you're concerned about somebody in your family or, or your friends who may, you feel maybe have, has an eating disorder, how can you start to approach that topic with them uh, without maybe, um, you know, upsetting the person too much? It's really tricky. Like it's a really tricky balancing act. I think in fairness to parents, they are, they are quite good at picking up on red flags. And I would say trust your instinct you know your son or daughter you can sense something isn't right uh, but firstly really you need to get informed and be informed and have a little bit of information in your back pocket and read up on the issue first you know do some research you know really put those kind of myths and misconceptions that it's only young people or that it's only women completely put those to one side so get the research done you know, try and understand this is a coping mechanism. It's probably quite secretive. And, you know, you might have come across it accidentally. You might have noticed something and you feel you need to speak up. Focus very much on the communication piece. And I would say it's, it's about active listening skills. And you're trying not to ask questions that will only produce yes or no answers because that, you know, that's not really a conversation then. So, and you want to do it also in a, in a, you know, preferably in a calm setting, in a time where, you know, people feel comfortable and that a person isn't kind of, that you're not making demands of them. And definitely it's about not so much what they're doing as behaviors, but it's about how are they feeling in, their self, in themselves. And, you know, you do, yes, have to communicate that you are worried and that you have noticed things and okay do you think you need a little bit of help with this right now so it's all of that communication skills piece and it's you know it's probably not going to be one conversation it's going to probably going to be multiple conversations and then you know the ideal situation is further down the line the per person will want to make contact with the gp and medical and professional services they may they may not want to 
to after the first conversation but i think you have to flag look this is really something that can't be left kind of unattended as it were mm. and i think the earlier there's intervention sort of the the better the outcomes uh, can be right Certainly, the longer the, the the symptoms and signs of an eating disorder are left unchecked, the more entrenched it becomes in the person's life, the more a default way of coping it becomes. And, you know, that's why early support and intervention is important. But, you know, people, people still kind of hesitate sometimes with help seeking because of the stigma because of the fear and you know that includes a fear of not being taken seriously as well and speaking of uh support uh would like to talk a little bit about the national clinical program with the hsc we know that uh body wise is collaborating to this program to uh, help families and people affected by eating disorder and give support yeah, so the, the National Clinical Programme for Eating Disorders, also called the Model of Care, was launched in, in January 2018, so three years ago. And you can look it up online. There's a big document, 150 pages. And the, the strength of the clinical programme is really, it sets a very high bar for how you know, eating disorder services should be delivered in Ireland. And that's right, because that's what people and patients deserve, but also their families. So under the model of care, it's a blueprint for you know, the, the creation of specialized teams. So that's eight teams for adults with eating disorders and eight, eight teams for children and adolescents, for people affected by eating disorders. So it was already being implemented when it was officially launched three years ago and it is still being implemented at the moment and you know it's it's really so that there are specialized services within different parts of the country whereby people can go in and you know get uh, family-based treatment which is fbt cbte cognitive behavioral therapy enhanced developed by christopher Ferburn in the uk so at the moment there are three teams and you know the program needs to be fully implemented so that all of those services can be available to, to people with eating disorders and their families. And so how would people go about accessing that? Is it through their GP or do, can they contact um, you know, the program directly? Yeah, it, the, the gateway is really through the GP and that's the treatment pathway. The GP will make a referral. Okay, that's good to know. We also, you also mentioned there just um, something I think it's important to highlight is the numbers people generally consider eating disorders as something that affects women um, and not men um, or, or, or girls and not boys. But the most recent statistics looks like it could be up to 40% of um, men are affected by eating disorders. And um, what has your experience sort of been with the Irish population? And uh, maybe you'd like to comment on that, Barry. Yeah, it's an it's an interesting one. When I when I first started working in this area over eight years ago, there kind of wasn't much of a focus on eating disorders in men. Now that has changed. There's a lot more people uh, kind of being very upfront about their own personal experience as men, but there's a lot of researchers and clinicians driving it as well. Now there are still challenges, so less than 1% of all re eating disorder research 
has been carried out on men. The kind of old statistic that's kind of often touted around for eating disorders in men is one in 10. We know that's, you know, that's really dated and doesn't really fit anymore. So for, for anorexia, it might be one in 10. For bulimia, it might be one in three. And for binge eating disorders, it might be 50-50. In terms of recent statistics, People might have heard of the hospital admission figures coming up here in Ireland and the 66% the increase that was for 2020 as a whole. But the, the, period, the period between March and September, this was the piece written by Elizabeth Barrett, who's in UCD School of Medicine, 40% of the presentations uh, to hospital were males. That really jumped out from that piece of work. Unfortunately, men, though, you know, there's still there's still a stigma of, well, they we, we would say they experience a double stigma, which is a stigma of having one, the eating disorder, and number two, uh, you know, being a man with an eating disorder. So that, again, can delay help seeking and which is not which is not what you want. I am. Um, I read uh, your uh, section uh, connected to research in the website, and I was. I think it's really interesting. There are uh, several uh, different range of research, different subjects, and I was uh, particularly curious about um, some recent uh, recent research about orthorexia, and I read that it's. Uh, not officially recognized, but um, I've also read that there are a lot of people that are in the process to be diagnosed with orthorexia. So I was curious, do you have a lot of people seeking support for that or is still something that is not so common or it's hard to be diagnosed or recognized in general? Again, it's one of those ones, I think there's a conversation around it, definitely. And for people who don't know, the term orthorexia came from Dr. Stephen Bratman in the late 90s. And what it is, is where a person focuses on the purity of their diet. So the, the composition of the food and the origin, where it came from and all of that. And that becomes the window through which they view their their relationship with their food and also themselves. Uh, I don't have currently our, our own statistics just to hand at the moment for orthorexia. I mean, it will possibly be in the future be become a recognized diagnosis, but it's only got, that's only going to happen if the research is there to validate the, the instruments and the tools that are that are required to diagnose it. I think, given where. <clears throat> I'm going to say, especially through social media, where the the idea of a healthy diet, um, and there are a lot of different diets, whether it's paleo or low carb or no carb, you know, people think that they're starting a healthy diet and they're starting to eliminate different food groups completely. And, and this can be quite, a, I think, a slippery slope because a healthy diet shouldn't involve eliminating any food group. It should be a balanced approach to, to everything. And um, maybe do you, do you, what, what are your thoughts around that? And the current culture, I'm going to say online around healthy eating. Yeah, I mean, I suppose what's, what's coming up to mind with orthorexia is people potentially 
exercising a value judgment on food and then that's really tricky because it then does it become this kind of internal dynamic in their head of how they see food and kind of very much policing how they relate to food and certain food groups and you know i think there's a there's a potential there for certainly a red flag around being on that pathway of then slipping down into that spiral of an eating disorder yes and look, we know social media directly does not cause an eating disorder but can there be poor quality information on there yes absolutely and, and sometimes vulnerable people will pick up on that yeah, I think, yeah, it, it is, it's it's where there's a vulnerability there already that that can then become um, almost a trigger essentially towards an eating disorder. So I think people do have to be quite careful around, um, yeah, like you said, the term policing their food. Um, so maybe we, we'll, we'll shift our conversation a little bit towards research. And, um, you know, uh, I was reading some interesting statistics there that the prevalence rate of eating disorders is quite similar to that of schizophrenia. Um, and just these are numbers now from the states, but it, it's it's relevant here too, that for every person suffering from schizophrenia in the, in the states, they invest $300 into research in that disorder. That's, you know, amounts to quite a lot. In the case of eating disorders, for every one person uh, suffering with an eating disorder, they invest less than $1 in research. Now, that's a disparity of $300, essentially. Like, that's, you know, a huge difference there. Um, and I think it's a real issue that eating disorder research is underfunded. Um, would you like to comment on that, Bray? Yeah, that is, unfortunately, the, the reality, you know, I always say in this area we're battling a very significant information gap so you know 200,000 studies have been published on depression only about 15,000 have been published on eating disorders so we don't have all of the pieces of the jigsaw like we just we just there's so many things we don't know and we're that, that affects the entire field. Like it affects not just the research, but it affects the, you know, the clinical work and the frontline services and all of that kind of thing, because we just don't have all of the information on why eating disorders happen and what the causes are, what the best treatments are. So, you know, I don't know what the specific reason is why there is that gap between other illnesses like schizophrenia and eating disorder research. On Twitter, what I've seen people anecdotally speculate, you know, that the perception is eating disorders affect fewer people. Therefore, it's not worthy of the research investment compared to other uh, mental health illnesses, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's very disappointing. It kind of sounds like maybe a trope, but maybe there is some truth to it as well. And um, do you feel there are uh, what kind of needs for further research are there? I mean, uh, looking up the recently uh, recently papers or recently research on Bodywise website, I um, I found out that, for example, about uh, men's research are uh, very recent, like in the last three or four years. Uh, research about uh, fathers and son within disorders started to be carried out and 
it wasn't so common previously. So do you think is there like uh, a need for this kind of research or other kind that is not so um, uh, studied right now? There are, I mean, there are so many different subtopics you could look at. Uh, there's a couple of years ago, there was a project called the ANGIE initiative. So that's the anorexia nervosa genetics initiative. There's one as well now on binge eating and, and bulimia nervosa genetics initiative, where they're taking, kind of, I think it's kind of nasal swabs from people and then mapping that out and seeing kind of what the, what gen genetics links are. Uh, we know there's also a link for autism as well so there's a connection between autism and eating disorders and what they estimate is it's it's one in three and those figures are from the uk so one in three people with an eating disorder may also be autistic and that's really interesting but again we don't know why even though the first connection was made in the 1980s we still don't know fully why but I know that what happens sometimes is the question of autism doesn't really arise until a person has a mental health crisis and then they present in services. And this is particularly women where autism is kind of underdiagnosed anyway. And then, you know, they experience an eating disorder. And then the question of autism comes up and they may get an autism diagnosis. And there's also, you know, there's a strong link as well between eating disorders and sport. So there's, there's a whole raft of issues that, you know, some have a lot of, a lot of research compared to others, but definitely we need to do more and more. Yeah, I was reading um, during the week some research in that area around the genetic studies. And um, there's a lab in the University of, of North Carolina run by Cynthia uh, Bullock um, and she under her lab undertook a massive study where they had 16,000 patients with anorexia nervosa and 55,000 controls so it's a huge huge study um, but what they identified were um, gen genetic loci or genetic information um, which is uh, different between the patient group and the controls related to psychiatric disorders um, in general, and um, physical activity, like you said, and metabolic disorders. So it may be that, like, um, that there is a genetic vulnerability within people to have an, an eating disorder, um, and then this can be fueled by environmental factors like stress at school or home life, or um, you know, it's, it's very hard to measure genetic uh, sort of environmental factors and how it can impact on a person's genetic material to develop a condition, but there really is a vulnerability there. I, I remember that study because it, it, you know, it got international headlines. It was on the BBC News and all of that. They attended a webinar just there before Christmas, and it was by a group of people who work in the area of prevention in Harvard. And the way one of the speakers put it was, nature loads the gun, the environment pulls the trigger. Now. Nice. It's a little bit simplistic in a sense and a little bit crude, but there's also some truth to it. So yes, in some people there is that genetic risk and then the environment will come in and that's going to be very individual. At the same time, we have to be careful because, you know, genetics can, can attach a sense of blame. Uh, particularly to families, I think, and parents. And Cynthia Bulick also said in some in some video work following the study, genetics are not destiny. And that's a really important piece as well. 
what would I say about the environment is, you know, it's it's so many different things we talk about in in people's lives having windows of vulnerability. So that could be puberty, um, some sort of big life transition, change at school, bullying, trauma. So it's you know it's eating disorders. You have to think they are multifactorial. They are complex. You cannot generally boil it down to one single cause. So that's why it is that combination of potentially genetics and the environment and low self-esteem, low self-worth. And, you know, I would always think kind of, of an example maybe of a person, let's say they were not feeling great in themselves and, and they were doing things like they were journaling and they were going for a walk and that worked for a period of time. But then there was some bullying, there was some sort of upheaval in their personal circumstance, and they tried journaling and walking again. Didn't really work, but then something came into the mind. Why don't you change what you eat? Why don't you run 10K every day? And why don't you make yourself sick? And then they find they do that, and it does work. And then they're on that, they're doing that eating disorder situation. So it's it's kind of the multi-layered process behind. That's that's kind of what you might sometimes see in an eating disorder. Again, that's a very condensed kind of version. Yeah, I was um, I was thinking while uh, you were speaking. Actually, I think the COVID nineteen pandemic uh, affected this kind of behavior a lot. I mean, uh, it's. Uh, stress the stress level it's high for everybody so are there any studies or research about that or it's kind of too recent um i think i've read something on your website that have been carried out last year uh, about the impact that the pandemic uh, had on this kind of um, process yeah, I have to say, I, I take my hat off to researchers and clinicians because they have they've jumped right into responding to this crisis and also people with eating disorders. So we now have upwards of 30 publications on the issue already, and that's in a relatively short space of time, like in, in under 12 months. And again, bringing it back to the environment, I would say, that has been such a significant change for in COVID-19. And that is one of the four issues people really identified with on our services was that the environment completely changed. And then there was all the kind of background stuff like people doing fitness routines and social media chatter and the, the, quarantine, the quarantine 15, the weight gain, all of that kind of thing. What I would say also, like the overall experience of an eating disorder has unfortunately intensified during COVID-19. And that's why you are seeing increased hospital admissions because people are coming forward, unfortunately, more clinically unwell. That's the same in Ireland. It's in Australia. It's, it's, it's in, the United, in the United Kingdom as well. They're all reporting increased hospitalizations due to eating disorders because people have not had access to the coping routines they would have used before COVID-19 because they've all just been stripped away and you know taken taken from underneath them. There was a real piece then in terms of communication. That was something else people on our surfaces very much talked about. So you know, living with a partner, living within a family who don't fully understand an eating disorder 
And then there was also an expectation, well, you have to be better now and that kind of thing. And the other thing people discussed was very much recovery and relapse. So either relapsing back into an eating disorder or COVID-19 had kind of put their recovery into jeopardy as well. So that's what we're hearing on our services, but it's very much coming through in the research literature as well. Yeah, I think um, when it, it, they're listed on your website, but but some of the numbers there was um, around the, your website and the activity, there was a 66% increase in hospital admissions in Ireland in 2020 um, around eating disorders, a 66% increase, it's huge. And 40% of these were males. You had a 50% increase in helpline calls and a 110% increase in activity and online support groups. So like the, the pandemic really um, fueled like eating disorders for people. It must have been incredibly difficult and, and it's still ongoing. It hasn't stopped. Yeah, absolutely. And even I was doing a comparison there of the, the, the past January. So January 2020 and January just, just gone there now. So... 51 people came to our online group in January 2020. So, and then 111 people came in January 2021. So that's an increase of 118% on a January, January comparison. Emails again, you know, up by 45%. So January 2020, 138 emails and January 2021, 300, over 300 emails. So what, what has happened is, you know, it, it hasn't been a flash in the pan, the contact with our services. The, the, the impact was immediate, but it, it's really sustained completely through the crisis. And again, I would draw a comparison with international peers as well. It's, it's what people are saying, you know, there are a lot of clinicians on Twitter and psychiatrists and it's, it's the same everywhere, unfortunately. Yeah, it's um, it's just another effect that this pandemic is having on, on people's health. Um, but with, in the case of eating disorders, I think there's still, in the eyes of the general public, they still have a long way to come to understand that eating disorders have a biological basis, like something like schizophrenia or even depression, where, you know, the, the serotonergic system is dysfunctional and that can fuel the depression. Within eating disorders and anorexia nervosa, there this is a biological condition, and it's not voluntary. There is no choice in this, um, and I think we need more research into obviously into the biology, and that's something that we're doing at Ulysses Neuroscience, but also in raising awareness for. Um, for the general public to understand and um, to maybe accept eating disorders as as a, as a real condition. Yeah, it's 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 a tricky one. I someone I think hit the nail on the head a few years ago. They said, "There's more awareness than there is understanding," and I think I think that's absolutely true. And my own kind of passion in this area is when you speak about a mental illness you have to humanize it as well you, you can't just talk about the signs and symptoms you have to give an example of a lived experience and that's why we in bodywise have a couple of people who have been through the personal experience and they they can talk about it on the radio you know i think Ultimately, you can probably only change one mind at a time. And I think the people who are more understanding are sometimes friends, 
or the family who've, who've lived with it because they know what it's like. But the wider society still draws it back to Western middle class white girls making a lifestyle choice. That was the, one of the first stereotypes put to me when I started working in this area. And, you know, it, it's not true that eating disorders are unique to the Western world. Look, they've been documented in Asia, in the Middle East, in South America. So, they, you know, they, there's no, they don't respect geographical boundaries. And the piece about the choice is really, really hard because, you know, people will ask, why would someone get into a situation where their relationship with food becomes rigid, controlled? and really detrimental to their health. And you have to remember that the signs and symptoms around an eating disorder are ultimately how it manifests. And there are incredibly serious medical complications, osteoporosis, damage to a person's heart, damage to a person's teeth, potential infertility, loss of periods for women and young girls and so on. And look, it's all of that and the signs and symptoms, the over-exercising, the purging, the restrictive intake and that kind of thing. It's what's underneath all of that is what treatment kind of has to try and address. And sometimes, sometimes people are concerned when they're in recovery that the physical issues are addressed, but there's less emphasis on the psychological issues. And that's why you know, sometimes getting better can feel like things are getting worse because there's, there's this internal battle within the person, in the rational side of their head and the eating disorder side of their head where the eating disorder side will always push a person to do more and want to punish themselves. It's very, very difficult to let go of an eating disorder which has become a coping mechanism and something a person has used for many, many years. And um, you just touched on it a little bit there on, on treatments. Can, do, you, do you want to talk a little bit more about the type of treatments that are, are working for people? And maybe if you have some insight into treatments that are coming through that may be sort of look like the future treatments for eating disorders. Certainly in Ireland, in, in the specialised services, what people have access to is cognitive behavioural therapy enhanced. That's a specialised eating, eating disorder treatment uh, based on a CBT model delivered or created by Christopher Fairburn in the UK. And FBT then, which is a family-based treatment, also kind of referred to sometimes as the Maudsley model or the Maudsley method or new Maudsley training that those are kind of some of the services and what we know is people do best when you know the services are tailored to their needs because they do less well in general health settings where the staff really don't know as much and that's why you need people with specific skills and expertise who understand an eating disorder and, and can therefore work with patients and families to to deliver treatment that addresses all of the issues associated with an eating disorder. I would also say, you know, we have to really talk about recovery as well. And recovery is a very slow burn process. In the same way it, it takes some time to develop an eating disorder, it takes a really long time to recover from it. 
because it's just been a huge part of their life and they've lost out on things. Sometimes they've lost friendships, they've lost connections, you know, maybe they've missed, missed out on school. And, you know, people with eating disorders, they've written books, they've written films, they've been in films, you know, they've written news articles, they've done podcasts. And it's, you know, those experiences, we have to listen to those as well. So they're very, often very communicative about their experience in a way that is can can be really informative and it's it's through those kind of experiences where we'll where we will get better understanding that goes beyond kind of maybe the 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 limitations of just an awareness messaging piece so maybe we can say that talk about that share your experience could be a sort of treatment so to share your experience with other people and uh, just recognize your uh, disorder and uh, be aware of the, the possibilities could be a sort of treatment i think some people do find this healing to share at the same time others may not want to do it because it is very exposing and because again you're going to come up against that stereotype of well, why can't you just eat? And, you know, this is a silly thing now and it's a phase and all of that. So some people, you know, that's, if they disclose it in their friendship circle, they might only tell one or two people who are closer friends because they know and trust them for a good period of time. And I think what's interesting about the books I've read over the years is no mention of weight numbers at all in some of those books. And... I think that's quite deliberate because really nobody has a right to know that, I don't think. But also the books really bring you into a sense of what it's like to have an eating disorder. So they're they're very descriptive in that sense. So I think we're getting really towards the end of the podcast. And um, what I'd like to do is uh, maybe just highlight the, the study that we're doing within Ulysses Neuroscience. So what we're trying to understand is the neurocognitive and, and biological basis for eating disorders. Um, and the way that we are doing this is looking for uh, markers in plasma. So protein markers, which we call biomarkers um, in plasma from patients. And we will compare this then to controls and um, we'll also do some cognitive tasks with um, patients as well. And the idea then would be to correlate the biomarker data with the cognitive data and see how they're related to each other. And so if anybody um, listened to the podcast would like to volunteer or be part of that study, please reach out to us and um, through our website, uh, ulyssesduro.com. Um, and um, I think we'll just wrap up, but I'd like to ask Barry maybe to talk to us a little bit about the events that BodyWise have planned for um, Eating Disorder Awareness Week, which starts on March 1st. Yeah, so Eating Disorders Awareness Week runs March 1st to 7th of 2021. And on the 1st of March, there is an event, a webinar for professionals, continuous professional development, CPD training on binge eating disorder that you have to register for on the 2nd of March. Then there's another evening time webinar and that's looking at the impact of COVID-19 on eating disorders. And that's in conjunction with the Psychological Society of Ireland. On the 3rd of March, then Wednesday, another evening webinar, which is very much focused on autism and eating disorders 
right across the lifespan. So children, adolescents, adults, the carer experience, and also the lived experience. So again, another piece of the Psychological Society of Ireland. Uh, there are a few other bits and pieces being worked on at the moment. I just don't have uh, the details to confirm right now. Um, okay, thanks, Barry. Um, and just to clarify, that's definitely all online at the moment, yeah? Yes, they're all done all to online. webinar formats. Okay. Um, and maybe, Barry, you'd like to tell us um, just... Sorry, there will be... There will be another uh, family program starting up again from BodyWise on the Thursday evening, the 4th of March. So it's just run there now in January into February. So our next online family program will be on Thursday, the 4th of March, again in the evening. And people can register for that, whether whether you're a parent or a grandparent or a sibling, you know, you can just register a free place it's free to attend you can contact pillar at bodywise.ie so that's p-i-l-r at bodywise.ie if you want to sign up and for anybody out there who is concerned about themselves or concerned about a family member or a friend around eating disorders can you just um highlight the contact details through bodywise that they can access and um, some help yeah so people can log on to www bodywise.ie that's b-o-d-y-w-h-y-s.ie and then the alex support service which is email alex at bodywise.ie and then also our helpline service which is 01-210-7906 okay great and um, thank you so much for joining us today barry um, and thanks to everybody for listening um, and take care Okay, bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Keep an eye out for our next podcast for Rare Disease Day on February 28th. We will be discussing Charcot-Marie Tooth Disease with a member of the CMT community. And this podcast will be hosted by Eva Thornton and John Keeley. So please check it out in support of Rare Disease Day.